Welcome to the New Life Millbrook Weekly Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit nlmillbrook.com. So Lord, we just thank you this morning for your word. Thank you for this time that, that these people have set aside to hear from heaven. They desire to hear a word from you, a word of life. They positioned themselves this morning to hear that word they have need of. And I know, Lord, you'll not disappoint them. Father, I thank you this morning that you used me to minister forth your truth so that our lives can be conformed into what you would have for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, amen. If you would turn with me this morning to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 11. And as we get there, I'll just give a little small recap last week because this all ties together. You know, we've been ministering on the fact that the best is yet to come. For the last couple of, uh, well, the last month, the best is yet to come. And if you watch the news a lot, you'll see that, that the best that the world has to offer is not that great. But the best that God has to offer is good. Amen? And it's more than enough. But the thing is about all of this is about we have to position ourselves to receive from God. Amen? And we do that by, by fellowshipping with the Lord. And last week we went over the fact that, went over how when things are going tough, when things are in the valley, you know, it's not real hard to cry out to God when things are going south. You know what I'm saying? You, you're saying, Lord, I need help. Lord, I need this. I need that. And, and you stand on his word and you look for things that may be in your life that shouldn't be and and, and things that might be hindering uh, from you receiving from God or whatever. And so you're just like, you know, I'm going to get this right. And uh, you, you stay before God. And last week we made mention, in fact, in I think it was uh, 1 Kings, is when uh, Benadad came down upon Syria about how they came and fought against the children of Israel in 1 Kings chapter 20, about how the Israelites... The children of Israel defeated the Syrians when they came down, although the army was a lot larger. And the Syrians said it's because they had the God of the mountains, the God of the hills. And so they challenged them again the next year. And they said, we're going to fight you again, but this time we're going to do it in the valleys. And so God came to them, the children of Israel, and said, look, King Ahab, uh, this is what you're saying, and I'm going to defeat them again. And so they came out that time. And, and God showed out again, and the Israelites defeated the Syrians once again in the valleys to show those people, show the Syrian army and everybody around, that not only is he the God of the mountaintops, he's the God of the valleys. Amen? And that's the God that we have. But he's not just to be the God of the, of the valley when things are going tough. And you run into him, you know, Lord, I, I need some help, I need some help. But he's also the God on the mountaintops when everything is going great. And I found that in most people's lives that we... That, that, that are believers, they can go and they tell God, you know, how great he is. And they tell people and, about the blessings of God when things are going great. And they share with them, say, you know, my God, he's, boy, he's just showed out. He's taken good care of us. He did this. He did that. And he's given to us in all different kinds of ways and ministered to us. And so we, we see that God can be, is the God in the valley and he's the God in the mountaintops. But where we miss it most of the time is the fact that God needs to be the God of the plain. And this is where we live most of the time, is it not? Yeah. Most of the time we live in the plains where everyday life is. 
And in doing so, things can get comfortable. I brought out last week, if we get comfortable and we just think, you know, we're not really have a need. We got a little bit of extra money. We can do some hobbies. We can do this and do that. We're, we don't have to borrow money to go on vacation. We, cars are running good, got a decent job. Things are going good, and we can get into this place where it's no pressure. No pressure. We're just kind of coasting along, and we begin to pick up hobbies and habits and things that aren't really bad in any kind of way, but where they become uh, where we put those things first, where we once had time to, uh, to, to spend time in prayer. Uh, now we're doing it somewhere else. You know, we're using that time somewhere else. Where before when we sat down to read our Bibles, now we're reading a magazine pertaining to whatever hobby it may be, whether it's a golf magazine or or a hunting and fishing magazine, or whether it's that one I used last week about the small uh, remote-controlled airplanes. Whether, you, you know, you're picking up these magazines, you're reading it, but you don't have time to read the Word anymore. And we find ourselves, in, and it's so subtle, you don't really catch it. But the thing is I brought, was bringing out last week is the fact that every single day that we're living on the plains, we're molding and fashioning and shaping our thinking, our faith, and everything else. Because there will come another day that we're in the valley, You'll have to deal with things, face things, or a mountaintop. And the thing is, is how we live in the valley, in the, in the plains, determines how we're going to respond when crisis comes. Are you hearing me? When crisis comes, and that crisis will come, things are going to happen. But the way you live your life in the plains determines how you're going to respond when things happen. If you were one that's prone to... You know, I'm just going to watch Monday night football. I'm going to do all these things, but I'm never going to pray. And the doctor's report comes to you, and it's not a very good one. Guess what? You'll probably believe whoever, whatever commentator or football coach before you will, you know, what the Word says. Why? Because you spent all your time with them. And you know what? They don't even know who you are. But God does. And so the way we spend our everyday life determines how we're going to spend our time when we're faced with a, like I said, a valley situation or a mountaintop. And so it's important to, to learn that our prayer time, in other words, our communion time with God, our time of fellowship with Him is very vital. It's not something that we just do before meals or before we go to bed. It is a communication that takes place all day long. I remember one fellow minister said, you know, I don't pray uh, all day long, he said, I just don't remember ever not being in prayer. In other words, he just, he says, I don't usually pray over 10 minutes at a time, but then I don't remember going 10 minutes without praying. So he was just saying, it's just a constant way of living, a constant way of communicating. Most of the time, I know when I grew up, I thought prayer was something you did on your knees. You know, you got to pray, you got to pray on your knees. Why? Because God hears better when you're on your knees. I didn't have a clue, but I did know this, that, that uh, you know, it wasn't very comfortable, especially on those little benches that they gave us at the, you know, in, in the Catholic Church, they had little kneeling benches, so you didn't really actually kneel on the concrete or the tile, you had these little padded things, but even then, they got sore because in the Catholic Church, you, you stood up, sat down, knelt down, you were active so you wouldn't go to sleep. Maybe we need to start instituting some of that around here. But uh, nevertheless, you know, we, we, we see some things that, of how we participate in our life, how, how God is intermingling with our life in the plains affects how we're going to face everything else. And so 
that's the reason that I went through that last week so that we can come to a place that realize that, that it's our everyday living right now, especially with the, the pandemic coming to a close and more freedoms are there and you can go here and go there. And it's like taking the, the edge off, you know, and it's kind of like, oh, don't come to a place where you let your guard down and say, well, you know, I don't have to do anything anymore. I made it through. No, we're not through. We're still here. So we still continue to walk with the things of God. But look here in chapter 11 with me in verse 1. And it says here, And it came to pass that as he was praying in a certain place, when he ceased, speaking of Jesus, one of his disciples said unto him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. Now, it's amazing that after three years of, of walking with Jesus, seeing all the things that uh, all the miracles, uh, seeing his daily habits, they noticed several things about him. They witnessed his daily routine, routines every single day. And one of those was that Jesus prayed. Jesus not only prayed, but he prayed on a regular basis. And it was during Jesus' prayer time was, is where the Father would instruct him in where to go and what to do when he got there and, how to, and what to speak about and what to say. Because the Bible clearly states that everything that Jesus did and everything he said was because the Father told him to do it and told him to say it. And so he received this instruction during that time. And although Jesus was equal in the triune being of God, in the Godhead, nevertheless, he submitted himself to the Father's will. And you would think after spending so much time with, uh, with, with Jesus that you would know how to pray, wouldn't you? I mean, after walking with Jesus for three years and he's praying every day and spending that time, you would think that the disciples ought to know how to pray. At least I used to think that way. But then again, you would think that somebody that attended church every single week would know how to pray. Hello. Matter of fact, I used to think that I, I knew how to pray. You know, I was raised in church, attended a Christian school, altar boy for 12 years. And if someone would have asked me how, you know, if I knew how to pray, I would have said, well, sure I do. But the truth of this matter is I didn't really know how to pray. I just knew how to recite a prayer. Are you hearing? You see, I've been taught that if you just, if you, when you pray, you just recite this prayer here. You recite the Lord's Prayer or, or a Hail Mary or Glory Be to God. You recite one of those prayers. And there was a prayer that you prayed before you ate uh, breakfast or lunch and dinner, or whatever, a prayer for, for your meals. And then there was a prayer that you had after your meals. There was a prayer you had when you got up in the morning. There was a prayer you had when you went to bed at night. And they were all great prayers. Don't get me wrong. Somebody took some time to read the scriptures and, and come up with something that would, and formulated, put it in a prayer that was written, and it was, and it was good. But it wasn't my heart. I was just reading words off a page. Now, there was maybe a time when I first read it, or the first couple of times, that it really was, you know, I, I really liked it. I thought this was great. But the truth of the matter is, is, I never took the time to meditate upon that. I just read the prayer. Why? Because that's what I thought you were supposed to do. Just recite just quote back what it says there. Just, just quote the Lord's Prayer. How many times have you ever been in a locker room or at a, if you were in sports and, and you had a prayer before you went out and everybody said, what, the Lord's Prayer? And they said it, not only did they say it, they said, they said it so fast you couldn't understand what they were saying. You thought they were speaking in tongues. Isn't that right? Let's get through with this thing real quick. Why, so we can get out and play ball. It never was really heartfelt. never really took the time to stop and think these things through. 
What does this mean? And so here it is. We think, oh, well, man, you go to church. You, surely you know how to pray. But does it mean that you know how to pray correctly? Huh? Pray like what the Bible teaches. What Jesus said to do. I mean, how many of you want to get the results Jesus got? Do you think that God's trying to keep it from us? Anybody here think that God's trying to keep things from us so he's looking for a technicality in your lifestyle to keep you from getting anything? Oh, there it is. Thomas, you did this. You lose. You don't get it. I know it's a small thing, but you're out. Oh, so-and-so, no, not going to get it. You didn't stay knelt, knelt down long enough, or you didn't kneel before, you, you know, you didn't do this. God's not looking for a technicality to keep from giving to you. He's looking for a way to get it to you. But our thinking, the way we approach God, the way all of this is taken, you know, when we, when we pray, has everything to do with the way you fellowship with God during the week, during all day times. When you have a need and you go to the Father, do you go to him like, I don't hate to bother you right now because you think he might slap you or spank you or say, I've been meaning to get with you. Let me tell you what you did wrong. Is that what we think of the Father? Well, it probably is if you don't spend much time with him. But if you spend time fellowshipping with the Lord, then it's not that way. Because you already know he knows that you didn't want to do this but, and you didn't want to do that and you had an attitude about whatever. Because you fellowship with him continually. But see, even though I knew the Lord's Prayer, and it was on my lips daily, as a little Catholic boy, I prayed it every day, several times a day, I really didn't understand what I was praying. I had no idea. And although I prayed, you know, the rosary, I really, it was just our fathers and hail Marys and glory be to God over and over and over and over and over and over and over, repetitious. How many of you know what a rosary is? You know, little beads, and, and you say, you know, our Father, and then so many Hail Marys, and then a glory be to God, and then our Father, and so many Hail Marys, and you just go around this thing, right? You know, over and over, repetition of something that I'm just reading, just, or, you know, or saying, quoting, to get through with this. So if I did the rosary, then it uh, must be that I, I'm, I'm now eligible for the prize. And we make fun of the Catholics, well, some people do, I don't, I don't think you do, of praying prayers of repetition, but we do the same thing. Are you hearing me? How many of you pray for the same thing over and over and over? You didn't even know you were Catholic, did you? Huh? Well, what's the difference? Why would you keep asking God to heal you when, he, when your first time you, you said it? I mean, do you think he's hard of hearing? Yet we're going to keep going back to God over and over and over, asking the same thing, same thing, same thing, same thing. What's the difference? We know his word says, uh, talks about prayers of repetition just over and over and over. But we're not guilty of that, are we? I think I'll just move on. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with praying written prayers. It's the content. And it's the heart, your heart. That God's interested in when you pray. I remember praying prayers. I didn't know what the word said, but I remember getting Charles Capp's little book on, on prayers and uh, that you can pray every morning because I didn't know how to pray. And I started reading those prayers. 
But I didn't just read those prayers. I memorized those prayers. I meditated on those prayers. I got it down inside of me to the point where I didn't need to read those prayers out of that book anymore. It became my prayer. And that's the difference. You, you follow what I'm saying? But I needed some help because I didn't know what God's will was. And when you first started out, I mean, it's like, I, I didn't know God had one. I just knew I had a free will, and I never did real good with it. But God's got a will. He's got a will for my life. And I started reading that book there, and I, I read it, and I got it down inside of me, and I started real finding out that God had a will for my life. And it was not what I thought it was. And the more I found out his love towards me, the more I wanted to spend time with him. Problem is, is we don't spend time with him. We never can enjoy and and, and, under, and to feel that love. But prayer to me was a hit and miss type of thing. Growing up, it was like, well, you know, I, maybe I will, maybe if I want it, might as well have been like going to the casino. Just roll the dice, see what happens. You know, what's the chances? I'll never win if I don't roll it, right? Well, that was my attitude about prayer. Maybe this time I, he'll answer my prayers. But, you know, God, like I said, he's not trying to keep it from us, so he's not looking for technicalities. He's looking for faith. He's looking for faith. He's looking for somebody that would dare to believe his word. And you don't have to sound all churchy. You don't have to speak in King James uh, English. He just wants you to be you. But he wants you to do it in faith. And he said, they came to him and said, teach us to pray. And he said unto them in verse 2, when you pray, say. Now there's something right there that we need to realize that that there's a lot of things that we are to do. And one of them, he said, is to say. Say some things. Don't just think the things. Say it. God's given us the ability to speak, and there's powers in our words. But as he said here, when you pray, say. And he says, say these things, but it's not just words, okay? He says, our Father, which art in heaven. Now, did he say, pray to Jesus? How many of you pray to Jesus? Don't raise your hands. But did Jesus tell us to pray to him or did he pray to the Father in his name? How good are we at following instructions? We'll just leave that alone there. It says, our Father which art in heaven. Who is our Father? The kingdom consists of the king and his domain. And we know that. But what about the nature of the Father, the nature of the king? It says, our Father, not the Lord's Father, but our Father. Our Father. And if he's our Father, we'll be spending some time with our Father, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Holy is your name. Holy is your name. There's nothing about God that's, that's uh, polluted. There's nothing about God that's contaminated. There's nothing about God that's defiled. Everything about God is holy. Do we see God as a holy God? Instead of just running through a prayer, do we take the time... To realize, you know what? God is holy. He is a holy God. Holy is your name. Holy is your character. There's nothing about you that's, that's flawed. Holy are you. Perfect are you. Complete. And you begin to start seeing God for who he really is instead of just running through a prayer. Thy kingdom come. Whose kingdom, when we pray, do we really want to see? Our kingdom or God's kingdom? Huh? Do we, we're praying because we have a need, and the need is usually something that we want, a desire or whatever. So we're praying that our kingdom, 
We want what we're doing to happen, right? Or we're really looking and say, God, I want your kingdom. Thy kingdom come. So as we're praying, he was saying to him, he says, think these things. He said, say this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. He says, thy will be done. God, your will be done. As in heaven, so is in earth. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also forgive everyone that is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, we know those prayers. He says, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. What was he saying to us? So we just say, Lord, give us our bread, you know, today. Or was he saying, when you go to pray, understand that all provisions of life are at your disposal. All provisions. Not only just bread, but meat, housing, clothes, automobiles, everything that you have need of. Because if you read over in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6, verse 33, it he tells us that all these things God knows you have need of, does he not? And that he's provided them for you. He goes on in that part telling us that he takes care of the birds. He takes care of the lilies of the field. He doesn't have a problem with us having anything. He said, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto your life. So when we're looking at give us this day our daily bread, he's saying, look to God for all your provisions. Because all of it's already been taken care of. There's a particular area I want us to zone in on this morning. That's why I'm skipping through this. We may come back and touch a little bit about it. But and it's this part here. It says, and lead us not into temptation. But deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. Why would he say it that way? How many of you know that a lot of people believe that God leads them into temptation? Although it says it right here. Well, you know, God's trying to teach me something. Well, what have you learned? Well, I just feel like if I don't this, that. They kind of like believe that God did this to them. Tempting them to fall. Tempting them to fail. Tempting them to lose faith. They don't say that. But they're implying that God's done this to them. Did God do this? What Jesus is saying, the Father... The one you talked about how holy his character is. The father who you've watched that has all provision. He's not trying to get something from him. He's trying to give you something. The father, his character is flawless. He is not going to lead you down the wrong path. He has told you that I will lead you to the path of righteousness. I will lead you by the still waters, the green pastures. He never said that he would leave you to lead you somewhere to be tempted. He's wanting you to recognize here. He's not leading us to temptation, but he's delivering us from the one that is tempting us. But deliver us from evil. You know, I guess the best way to bring in this temptation is to go through the next verse, next couple of verses here. Because now he's going to give an example. He's, reading a, he's telling them a parable about prayer. Verse 5, it says this. He said unto them, Which of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight? And say unto him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine in his journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. 
And he from within shall answer and say, Trouble me not. The door is now shut, and my children are, in, are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give thee. I say unto you, Though he will not rise and give him, because of he is his friend, yet because of his importunity, he will rise and give him as much as he needs. We read this story, and it comes across a lot of times that people look and say that this is a comparison between this man and God, this guy's friend and God. It's not a comparison. It's a contrast. He's not comparing this guy with God. He's saying, look at the difference between the two. Guy comes to him at the middle of the night. Does it really matter to God what time you come to him? Does he live by a watch? Does he punch a clock? Does God care if it's midday or midnight? Does he think anything about it if you come to him at 2 in the morning? He said this friend came to him at midnight, which is a time of inconvenience. Has God ever been inconvenient, in, inconvenienced because you came to him? Have you ever went in and he said, not now, I'm just too busy. I'm trying to run a solar system out here. Has he ever done that to you? I've never come to him and him said, Alan, just wait. I'm having to deal with Dave Camp right now. Can you just give me five more minutes? He's never done that. I'm trying to protect Daryl. He stopped on the side of the road to pick up another cooler for family day. He's never done any of this. He's like, come on in. Doesn't matter what time of day it is, what time of night it is. And then he comes to this guy and says, friend, lend me three loaves. You know, he could have went to a lot of people, but he went to somebody he figured that would have three loaves. You notice the guy inside didn't say, I don't have it. Oh, he had it. That's a parable, but he was letting us know that this guy went to somebody who he knew had the provisions. He had the goods. He wasn't going to be able to say, look, I don't have any bread either. But that's not the excuse. He said, for a friend of mine's come in the middle of the night, and he didn't have anything, I don't have anything to feed the guy with. Can you help me? And the guy from within said, don't bother me. Trouble me not. It's late. The door's closed. The door's closed. How hard is it to open the door? I mean, any excuse will do, right? He says, the door's shut, and the kids are in bed with me. Uh, I can't get up and, and give to you. This is a friend. He says, no, I can't do it. Don't bother me right now. And that's how a lot of people think about God. Well, I hate to bother you, God. Here I am again. I'm in trouble. I have a need. And I know your door's shut right now. It's late. You got other people on your mind. You got other people you're dealing with. And I hope that maybe you can hear me through this thing. But the guy said, Jesus went on to say, Though he'll not get up and give to you because he's your friend, he'll get up and give to you because he's tired of you banging on the door. He's tired of you continually yelling through the window, would you please get up and give to me? I know you've got bread. Come on, give it to me. He says, the guy will get up and give to him that way. Now, some people would think that, that what we need to learn from this is that if we'll keep badgering God, if we'll keep begging God, if we'll keep saying, would you please, God, pleading with him over and over and over, keep knocking on the door, that you'll wear God down. 
Look, if Pharaoh didn't wear God down, you're not going to wear God down by keep asking him. Now, mamas may get wore down here, go on and eat this stuff. Daddies may get worn down, just go on and do what you're going to do. But God's not going to be weary because of you. So God's not saying, well, you know, if you bother me enough, I'll just give it to you. Come on now, just push through, get mad, pitch a fit, throw dirt up in the air or something, you know. If you'll just do all of that, I'll go ahead and give it to you just because I don't want you to act up like that. No, God would take the kid at Walmart and spank him in front of everybody. He's not moved by the, by the shenanigans that we may think that, just keep knocking, God, come on, come on. Let's see if we can't ask him again. Over and over. I know I just asked you yesterday, but I'm asking again. I'm going to keep on. I'm going to keep on bothering you until I get what I want. You're not going to wear God down. And I've heard it taught. Be persistent. Keep pushing. Keep pushing. Keep knocking. Keep doing the same thing over and over and over. Really. It's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what he said. He said here. Verse 9, and I say unto you, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and him that knocketh it shall be opened. If a son shall ask bread of any of you that is a father, will you give him a stone? Or will you, if he asks for a fish, will you give the, instead of a fish, give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will you give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? So if you would take, if your son came to you and said, Dad, can I have some money? I, I, I want to go to the store. I want to go zip lining or whatever. And he'd say, well, I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to give you some counterfeit money. I'm going to give you a problem. I'm going to give you this. You, he didn't, you don't say, here, son, take it. Then if you can be good like it, why would you think that God would tell you, no, you don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. And this is where we're, I'm getting with this. See, when we go to God, do we go to God in faith? Or do we go to God in our works? We deserve it. I've been good. I've done well this week. Do we go to God like it is over in Luke 18? Where he's talking about the publican and the Pharisee. The publican, the Pharisee goes in there and says, See how good I am, God? Can you pull up verse 18, please? I mean, chapter 18. Luke 18. In verse uh, maybe 14. He spake a parable of the sin that men ought always to pray and not to faint. How about that? So we are to tell us if you don't pray, what's going to happen to you? You're going to faint. He says men ought to always pray so they don't faint. So if we're praying the way God says, we won't be fainting. Um, I probably, let me see where it's at. Two men went up to the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men. Mm. I'm not an extortioner, extortionist. I, I'm I'm. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Not even like this publican over here. I'm not like any of them. I fast twice a week. I give my tithes of all that I possess. 
And it says, and then the publican, verse 13, stood afar off, would not even lift his head as much as his eyes even to, towards heaven, just smote his breast and said, God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. And Jesus said, tell me. I tell you that this man that went down to this house justified, the one that smote his breast, justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Now, it tells me here that, that God's not interested in your good works. Okay? Your good works is not going to get your prayers answered any quicker. And you know what I've said to you so far this morning? You probably, yep, that's right, that's right. I understand all that, and that's good. But how many of you know that you can pray out of temptation? We're to pray in faith, but most of the time, people pray probably out of temptation. But because they don't quite understand temptation, they don't even realize that's what they're doing. What is temptation? Is temptation not being uh, tempted? It's being looking at it from a position of lack, that you're lacking something. If you have a desire for whatever it may be, uh, to have a, a need met in your life, a temptation would be that you're not going to get it met, right? So you go and you ask the Lord, Lord, would you please meet this need in my life? And, and, and so are you praying to God because of a need, or are you praying to God out of love and just receiving what he's already provided? See, if you go to the Lord and say, Lord, have this need over here, and I'm coming to you to receive from you my daily provision. Or do you come to him and say, Lord, I got this problem over here that has to be met by Friday. And in your mind, if it ain't met by Friday, I'm going under. I'm going to be in trouble. I got this evil report from the doctor's office. I've got this. I've got that. What are you praying from? A position of temptation that you're not healed? A temptation that you're not going to have your needs met? Are you praying from the temptation standpoint? Or are you praying from a standpoint of faith that my God has done it? Now let me give you a better example or an example to explain this. There was a fellow named King David. And King David, before he was king, had entered into a covenant with a fellow named Jonathan, who was the prince of Israel, King Saul's son. And he entered into a covenant with him. And in a covenant, he said to him, he, it was set out this way, that whatever I have is yours, and whatever you have is mine. And he took it and they exchanged things like their, his garments and his, his swords and his, his so forth, exchanged all these things. And the covenant takes place. Now your strengths are my strengths, and your weaknesses are my weaknesses. That's what he was saying by giving of the, the armor and so forth. And he was saying, this covenant that we're having goes beyond just you and me. And you'll find this over in 1 Kings 18, again over in 1 Kings 20, where Jonathan and David had made this covenant. And he says, this covenant's not just for you and me, Jonathan. It's for your children and my children and your children's children and my children's children. This, general, this covenant goes beyond just you and me. And so in the midst of all of this covenant, it takes place, well, guess what happens? A war breaks out. Of course, Saul doesn't care for David, but a war broke out, and Saul ends up dying in battle. 
Sad thing is, is so does Jonathan. Both of them die. David ascends to be the king now. And David is king, and he's out, and he's defeating all these other armies and the Philistines and everybody else. And it comes a time over in 2 Samuel, I mean, a little bit later, or 2 Kings, a little later there, and he's standing at verse, chapter 9, verse 1, and he brings up, and he looks to everybody and says, Is there anybody left of the house of Saul? Is there anybody left? Because David now remembers his covenant that he had with Jonathan. Many years later, is there anybody left? And he says, they, they came and they did all the research. And said, There's a, a fellow named Mephibosheth. He lives down in Lodabar, over in the bad side of town. He lives down there, off over there. Well, what happened? Well, when he was small, when Saul and Jonathan was at battle, and the word came back that he died, they both died, there was a thing that armies did back then was they came in and they would attack and they would find every single member of every household that had any relationships whatsoever to the king and they killed them. So if you were a distant, distant, distant cousin to the king, they'd come kill you. Why? Because they don't ever want to have anybody rise up again to take and claim the throne. We're going to remove everything that even resembles you being king. The whole kingship's gone. Yeah, but David's the king. Yes, I know. But that was the way things worked. So word got sent down to Mephibosheth that the king wanted to see him. What do you think Mephibosheth thought? Well, the king's wanting to kill me. He's now found out that I'm heir to the throne and, you know, the rightful heir to this. And so now he's going to have me come up here and he's going to kill me. Now, the Bible tells us in this story that Mephibosheth, with, it's been so long that he now has a son himself. But what happened was, is when he was a little baby, just a little toddler, when the word came back that Saul had died and Jonathan died, the nurse made, scooped him up and was running for this boy's life so they couldn't get him. She tripped and fell. He hit the rock, pavement, whatever, and became paralyzed and never walked again. Handicapped. Wasn't his fault, but nevertheless, that's where he's at. He was dropped, but guess what? He wasn't forgotten. In the midst of all of this, Jonathan is looking and he's saying, is there anybody out there, David's looking and saying, is there anybody out there of the household of Jonathan or Saul that I can show mercy to and honor my covenant that I had with Jonathan? Is there anybody, just anybody? He is wanting to do something out of covenant. Mephibosheth's down there. He's not thinking covenant. He's thinking King David's got me coming up here because he's fixing to kill me in front of everybody. His whole life he grows up and he thinks if David, King David ever finds out that I'm heir to the throne, he'll kill me. All him, any other family members, anybody, all the people that were working and helping him and serving him and taking care of him, all of them felt like if David ever finds out, they're going to kill him. They'll probably kill all of us too. So here he is now, he raised his entire life, become an adult, has a child of his own, 
And this is so ingrained in him that if David ever finds out, he's going to kill him. Because David is the enemy. David is the enemy. He's out to kill me. David summons him up there. Come up here. And he told him, he says, Mephibosheth, let me tell you something. I loved you, Daddy. We were like this. We entered into a covenant. And Mephibosheth understood covenant. He says, I want you to know that all that Joe Daddy's, your grandfather Saul's, all of his property, his houses, his wealth and everything, I restore to you right now. Everything is now yours that was your daddy's, your grandfather's. He restored it all to him. Can you imagine what was going on in Mephibosheth's mind? He says, but you, Mephibosheth, you're going to eat at my table along with my sons. You're just like my son now. I'm not just going to have you go down there and I've restored you some wealth. No, we're going further than that. You're like my own son now. You're going to sit at my table every day and eat. And he calls them and says, now y'all go down here. Y'all been taking care of. Y'all going to work for him. You're going to take care of all this property. You're going to farm the ground. You're going to do all these things. You're going to take care of him and do all these things. You're going to take care of his son. But as far as Mephibosheth, he's eating at my table from now on. Mephibosheth is going to have to overcome all his life. He don't understand this covenant thing. See, Jonathan said yes to a covenant. David said yes to a covenant. Mephibosheth didn't. He didn't even know it existed. So every time David looked at Mephibosheth, all he heard was yes to the covenant. Yes to the covenant. Every time Mephibosheth saw it, he says, he's going to kill me. He's going to kill me. He is tempted to look at the bad, although he's heard the good. He's heard the truth that your daddy and me has entered into this, but he keeps having to revert back. And he's like, yeah, but I've been raised that you're going to kill me. So every time they come in contact together, he's always kind of worrying, is he going to hit me? Kind of like a dog that you picked up that, that was a stranger, and you go to pet him, and he always crouches over because the people before him abused him. You follow what I'm saying? So when you go before God and you're praying, do you go to God in covenant because Jesus did all the works? In other words, by what Jesus did, that is the yes to the covenant. Are you hearing me? It's not about your works. It's about Jesus' works. So it's not about you getting good enough to come to him. It's about what did Jesus did. Jesus, what he died, he died, rose from the dead. All of that, all the works that Jesus did is your yes to all the things that you have need of when you go to the Father. It's not about what you can do. It's not about how good you are. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be loving enough. Never. It's because Jesus was. So you go to him in love with a yes on your tongue that he is going to do this, what he said he was going to do. Not a, if I go in there, he may hit me. He's going to go in there and he's going to turn me down. If I go in there, he's going to say, you can't have it. You're bothering me. Leave me. Because we've been raised with a thought that, we're, that, that maybe God will or maybe he won't. That he's too busy for your little stuff. Oh, he gave you a mind. 
you know, all, all kind of things. Instead of coming to the Lord in faith, Lord, the covenant that we have with you says yes. And amen. But we come in there with something else called temptation that maybe he won't. What if he don't? What if he doesn't? See, we have that temptation that we have to, to deal with. So a lot of times we come and we do what? We come before the Father in faith or we come before the Father in temptation that he's not going to do what he said he was going to do. That he's not going to do or manifest what he said he already had. You do realize that when you come before the Lord and you ask him for something, whether it be new tires for your truck or, or clothes for your back or whatever it may be, God doesn't have to get up and make it. It's already made. It's already provided. And so when we understand that provision is not the problem, he's provided us with all we'll ever have need of. The question is, is do we go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm in lack. I have lack right here. And the reason we do that is because we don't understand our position. Because our position is either we're going to be over here with Mephibosheth or we're going to be positioned like David. David knew who is his covenant. He knew he was a yes man. Mephibosheth did not know. Now let's just look at this from this perspective. David came with this thought, I am in Christ Jesus. Mephibosheth, he didn't know that. So when we, how many of you are born again? You have your hands up, right? Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Stop. Say, I'm in Christ. You being in Christ, how many of you are in lack? Huh? If you're in Christ, are you in lack? Are you in sickness? Are you in death? Because my Bible tells me that in Christ is the fullness of all. So we don't approach God the Father in lack. We approach the, in the temptation of there's, it's not there. We approach the Father with an assurity of yes to the covenant. It's done. I'm in Christ. It's not by my works. It's by what Jesus did. I approach the Father by that. But when we approach him in temptation of, I'm gonna, if he doesn't provide, I'm going under. Well, how can you be, if you get that kind of thinking, then it's quite obvious you're not thinking from the position of being in Christ. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Are you praying from a position of being in Christ? Or are you praying in a position of being in temptation? If we pray in a position of in Christ, we know he's already provided it. It's just a matter of receiving what he's already made available. Are you, are you hear what I'm saying? But if you're praying from a position of lack, then it's a position of temptation. And the Lord said, the Father is not going to lead us into temptation. Now we see in James, it says, let no man say that when he is tempted, that he's tempted of God. So we know for a fact God didn't tempt us. So if we're tempted that God will not come through when we pray, then we know that's not of God. Is, it not, is that not true? So we have to understand, okay, when we pray, We'll pick up again next week here. When we pray, we pray from a position 
of faith that we are in Christ. We pray from a position of being in Christ instead of a position of being in lack, which is temptation, because in Christ you have it all. If you're being tempted that you don't have, that means you're praying from a position that's outside of being in Him. So when you go to the Father, go full of faith, believing that you can receive. Not that He just can do it, but He will do it. That it's already done. Our position is to receive what He's made available to us. It's amazing how we can do that when it comes to salvation, isn't it? We know that our sin is, is there. There's no way we can accept, you know, nothing we can do to change that. We can't die and, and pay the price for our sin. But yet we can reach out there and receive salvation from 2,000 years ago. Receive and apply the blood of Jesus on our personal lives. Now that's faith. That's faith. And that we need to do the same thing when it comes to any other things that we're praying and asking the Lord for. Yeah, but pastor, what if it doesn't work? That's praying from a position of temptation and not a position of in Christ. Yeah, but pastor, I got a deadline. Who put the deadline there? About this time tomorrow, food's going to be in abundance. You see, we limit so much, and prayer doesn't need to be a casino thing where we're going to roll it and hope for the best. If we walk in fellowship with God, God will reveal to us that there's going to be things that come up. You may not know all the situation about it and all the circumstances, but He'll reveal to you that. Stock market will do good for another couple, maybe for a year and a half, then it's going to make a tumble down real bad. I mean, he'll reveal these things to you. There's nothing going to catch you really off guard. He'll just like, okay, there'll be wars, rumors of wars. I mean, it's in the book, right? But he said men ought to always to pray and not faint. So if we walk in the plains praying, fellowship and having communion with God it won't be so hard when we go to the Lord and ask him Lord I have need of this and so I just receive now from you what I have need of because I'm in Christ there is no lack in Christ so I receive from you what you've made available to me now that sounds pretty bold and some of you may be sitting, sitting there thinking this morning I wished it was that easy it really is it's as easy as it was for you to get saved. It's that easy. And that's coming from somebody that's had to deal with lots and lots of prayer of temptation. I dealt with that for years. Even in the early years of the ministry and everything else, I prayed prayers of temptation, didn't even know it. And as I began to understand covenant, as I began to understand that I'm in Christ and who I am and who, what my real position is as a son of the Most High God. 
when I began to think and meditate upon that more than the, than the worries of this world and began to feed on that and feed on it and feed on it because it's true and it's life. When I began to start seeing that, it began more to become real to the point it just started manifesting in me. All my needs are met in Christ. What do I really have need of that he hadn't already provided? Does anybody here have a need that he hadn't already met? As we step into Christ, as we, from that position of being in him, there is no lack. It's only when we get over into the temptation, start walking into what if he doesn't. What about tomorrow? What did the Lord say? Sufficient is tomorrow, the evil of tomorrow. It, it, tomorrow's got its own troubles. Quit worrying today about tomorrow's troubles. There's plenty of them on tomorrow. He said, I'll take care of everything you got right now. So as we pray, what position do we pray from? Do we pray from a position of faith? Or do we pray from a position of temptation? Do we pray from being in Christ or in lack, in defeat? Do you see the correlation between David and Mephibosheth and Jonathan? Do you see how that worked? David said yes. That's where God is. He's saying, hey, I say yes. Jesus did it all. Yes is the answer. But we're the ones that have to come with this Mephibosheth mentality. Well, what if he don't? It's the day of the day he's going to kill me. I don't measure up. I can't even stand. I can't even walk. No. Now God's saying, hey, you come on up here. Look, you're going to eat at my table from here on out. You're eating at my table. My table. How many of you know God's table doesn't have any lack? There is no sickness there. We just got through praying what our Father, which are in heaven, holy is your name. Your character, everything about you, it's undefiled. There's no contaminants there. We're eating at his table. And if you were contaminated, you wouldn't be able to be sitting there with him. Because there's nothing contaminated. After all, you're in him, you're not contaminated any longer. Amen? So how are we really approaching God? How are we really coming before the Lord? It's not hard. You come according to being in Christ. Amen? Every head bowed and eye closed, nobody looking around. You may be here this morning and you feel like Mephibosheth. Always wondering, when will it be that I'm exposed? When will it be that my shame will come before everybody? And you want to believe so much that it's like a fairy tale that you're going to be able to sit at the king's table and become his son and have all the rights and privileges of being one of his. And you're saying, if it just could be so, and I'm here to tell you this morning, it is so. When you gave your life to the Lord, 
you may have to deal with the temptation of being a Mephibosheth. But the truth of the matter is, is you're in Christ. You're his son. And you're welcome at his table. And you're co-heir with everything that God has. Yet, this temptation. What if God doesn't? Continually knocks at your door. How, Lord, I just ask you now, as the people begin to meditate upon your word, when they rise up in the morning, they begin to say, Lord, today I'm going to spend some time with you. I'm going to have communion with you. I'm going to break bread with you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to talk with you. I'm going to turn this radio off. I'm going to turn this TV off. I'm going to spend some time with you. Lord, I thank you that they've come to this place. They begin to to start seeing themselves more in light of how you see them. Welcomed at the Father's table. And Lord, I thank you that as they see your love, they drop the Mephibosheth mentality and take upon the yes of David and Jonathan, the yes of Jesus into their life. Lord, I thank you today as they begin to meditate with these words of praying in temptation and praying in Christ, that they don't just let this slip away and say, well, that was a sermon. But they begin to meditate upon it. Do I pray in faith? Do I pray from a position of being in Christ? Or do I pray from a position of lack of temptation? Lord, I thank you that this, these thoughts will provoke them more and more until they begin to see it. It'll not be able to leave their thinking until they begin to start seeing it according to the truth. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I declare blessings upon the people today. In the name of Jesus, amen, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Have a great week.